Hey everybody, Ponders here. Just a quick note about today's episode. Uh, there is a point later on in the episode where it gets very emotional for both of us. And at one point we do start discussing uh, fathers who have passed away. Um, and if you are not emotionally ready for that kind of thing, we don't want to force you to listen to it. So I'm going to put a little ding in the episode where you can uh, stop listening um, and then you can probably pick it back up about about 10 minutes from the end of the podcast is when we stop talking about that. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, yeah, on with the show. So Alice. Hi Ponders. How was your last viewing of Rogue Fun? Rogue One, not Rogue Fun. Rogue Fun is the podcast we do. Rogue One is the movie. Oh, the podcast we do? Rogue Fun? Yeah. So I felt very fortunate that the last viewing that we did of this movie, we did together along with listeners on our Discord channel. We did a a live viewing with a couple of listeners and we sat down together and watched it. And um, that camaraderie and that the conversations that spawned from that made it a really special monthly viewing of the of the movie what how did you feel i agree i was there in the viewing and uh i had an excellent time and actually it kind of inspired me to be more interested in the rebel captain shipping because i good (laughs) i i previously hadn't really thought about shipping or rebel captain shipping because it's just not part of my purview within the fandom but watching the film with people who are interested in shipping right there commenting on the moments as they happen they're touching hands here they definitely kissed there look at the way he's (laughs) looking at her all these sorts of things definitely put me in a different mindset and so i have been uh, exploring the world of uh fan fiction and shipping so welcome to the true welcome to the true dark side yeah i'm i can't say it's been a great experience so far but there have been some really good moments so we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes i can't see this becoming a standard part of my fandoming but i am really enjoying the view that i'm getting yeah it's definitely a, a whole nother level of uh, of experience that uh, i've been into into shipping and fan fiction and that community since i was like 13 years old uh which was too long ago for me to mention um <laughs> it's uh yeah it's definitely not something you just uh dive on into so um we'll make a, a proper shipper out of you yet but it's gonna take some time <laughs> Uh, where were we last time? Where do we leave off? Uh, last time we left off was our crew, or or nearly our entire Rogue One crew, was being taken under blindfolds to Saw Gerrera's lair. Right, right. Uh, and we, we ended with the line, Are you kidding me? I'm blind! Are you kidding me? I'm blind! <laughs> it's really it's really good really good button um i feel like wraps up 
kind of most of the exposition and setup of the film. We're really going to get into some proper uh, proper plot and action here. Yeah, and we start with actually a shot of the Star Destroyer leaving the city, moving away from hovering over Jeddah, where it's sort of ominously been collecting kyber crystal yeah it's uh, a the sense of scale in that shot is really something because i think i said it last episode you don't really realize how big a star destroyer is until it's right up next to uh like a little tie fighter then you don't realize how small the star destroyer is until it's right up next to the death star but seeing the so knowing now because we've established how how big the star destroyer is in comparison to the death star seeing how it hovers over the entire city the entire Jetta city and these itty bit of little ties are flying around it like gnats and it takes off into the sky. It really sets the scale of, of this eventual destruction that we're about to see that you're like, that's a, a huge city, this right. enormous city of thousands and thousands and thousands of people that's about to just vanish in a moment. And we get, we get some shots of those people looking up. And I think there's a really good detail in the way that, they have a moment where they look up and they see the Star Destroyer leaving. And there's a little bit of relief in some of their eyes that then is immediately followed by a huge pit of despair. Of like, it's not just the ship is leaving, everyone is leaving. This this doesn't bode well. This is not so, a great sign. Something's going down. Yeah, which is why I assume then people start evacuating pretty much immediately. We know that um, that the two from the cantina, Evanson and and whatever his name is, Doctor something, Doctor something. I, I don't know. I got it wrong last time, and and I acknowledge that. But uh, to be fair, to to my credit, the Wikipedia is very confusing. <laughs> and, uh, and and we're so gonna, they obviously gonna, leave. We're gonna get called out for not knowing their names after we've already screwed it up once. <laughs> acknowledging i'm wrong that's good enough right guys yeah yeah we're good um (laughs) we'll call them evan and dr bonkers all right that's cool phd dr harris bonkers phd so uh evan and bonkers leave and (laughs) they obviously get off planet because we know they're on Tatooine next um within a matter of days so obviously people are able to make it out or enough people get the message that the town is probably not about to meet a great fate they don't know though what the death star they don't know what it means they don't know even if they can see it over the horizon the death star has been a secret up to this point no one knows what's about to happen which is completely blindsided which is why there's a really really great shot when the death star is moving around the moon and comes into the light of the sun and it's the like awakening of the death star as it's being lit up for the first time in in its destructive path and then as the death star continues throughout the scene it will move across the sun creating a whole solar eclipse pattern which is just phenomenal cinematography and beautiful coloring work but we get our first scene on the death star which is tarkin on the left and krennic on the right Uh, And they are looking down at the moon's surface and they begin this discussion of going to destroy Jetta City. Right. So Tarkin here at this point, maybe not so much Krennic, but Tarkin here at this point knows that 
a statement has to be made. Right. And he's goading Krennic at this point a little bit. Uh, he's he he takes pleasure in seeing Krennic get angry and by taking what little power Krennic has away from him. He take immediately takes control uh or he you know he he like sits back he's like okay yeah show, show me what this death star has. I guess he 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 dominates the room more gonna, than Krennic does. Let me jump in with my analysis of this cuz yeah. It starts with the two of them side by side to show them like starting in this equal spot, right? Uh, and then as they've come to the conclusion that they need to use the Death Star, um, Tarkin steps backwards. And in that motion, the camera comes with him and we see we see Krennic standing a, a little bit in front with us standing near to Tarkin, suggesting that the power is with Tarkin and not with Krennic. Yeah. And Krennic says... This has enough firepower to destroy the whole moon, or something. To, to that. yeah, he I says, I, "I stand ready to destroy an entire an entire moon." All Imperial forces have been evacuated, and I stand ready to destroy the entire moon. Yeah. And Tarkin's like, <laughs> Tarkin's like, "Okay, wait a minute." <laughs> he, no, and Tarkin uh, Tarkin says that it's it's like you're saying it's the domination of the room. That won't be necessary, Krennic. We need a statement, not a manifesto. Not a manifesto. The holy city will be enough. That won't be necessary. We need a statement, not a manifesto. The holy city will be enough for today. So he's he's taking Krennic's perceived power and and removing it and right. doing it with a smile and taking the wind he, out of the room. He is so so focused on being the most powerful person in the room and specifically trying to anger Krennic. He right. it's it's very deliberate. It's this. It's this. It's definitely an alpha dog who's in charge in the room sort of situation. Yeah. It's yes, it, uh. but it is it is an alpha dog situation in which Tarkin is trying to not take the power away from him entirely, not go to the point where he's saying like, "No, I get to make the call," but saying like, "You're still on a leash. I, I'm still the one in charge right now, even if you're about to do your thing." Um, which will play more into what is going to happen later in the scene. But then he says, Target Genesis. And then we get some shots from A New Hope again. We get some of these these uh, yeah. archival footage, I guess, if you want shots of A New Hope. And I don't think we've encountered any of those yet in the film. No, at this point... Not because we don't we don't get another shot like that, I think, until the Battle of Scarif. Um but yeah, we get uh, shots of powering up the Death Star. We know what that looks like. We've seen it in A New Hope. We watched Alderaan get destroyed. So we now get the same sequence of events, these same buttons being pushed, and these same guys getting ready. And this is their first time firing it. So we're seeing kind of a, the precursor to, I mean, this is literally a New Hope prequel, but we're seeing it literally at this point, the foreshadowing of what's to come in future films by using the footage from the old film which i think is right. very clever yeah and it, it definitely helps give the whole thing that continuous feel uh, i think a lot of like modern sci-fi tries to modernize the way that everything looks but in a lot of things in this film and it happens again later and it's already happened in the film there's an intentional deliberation in trying to make this look like a 70s 
sci-fi film. Yeah, that could have been made at the same time as right New Hope. They use yeah. yeah, they use the same like uh, glass panels with like neon lights on them for for computers, and they use right. it's the same same feel as a New Hope. It's a, a tonal match, just a little cleaned up, just a little, just a little more sparkly, yep. and uh, it looks. I, I I think it's a beautiful look, and that it was something that I always thought about when I was a kid watching the prequels, mm-hmm. and I love the prequels now. Um, but at right. the time, I was always confused why, even though these movies take place in a time before A New Hope how come their ships are so much shinier and their tech is so much cooler and they have like better stuff in the Clone Wars era than they did in the era of the original trilogy. That was a weird cognitive dissonance in my head how does the whole world fall so so quickly with right. just the the inclusion of having a unilateral government instead of a like imperial senate like <laughs> so, some form of like galaxy-wide EMP, repression of, right. of technology i don't i don't know because we don't really explain it we just get really really shiny naboo ships and stuff right. like that and like nothing is shiny in the original trilogy everything's a little dirty and we get that here in, in Rogue One also. It's a it also, little grittier. But so they have set to destroy Jetta City. And then we cut back, uh, not to Jetta City, but to our group of Saz Kadra with all of our Rogue One crew in uh, hoods being marched to Saz Cave. Yes, Saz ha- hidden himself in like catacomb like structures somewhere outside of Jetta city uh, out in the middle of the desert past where we saw him and Bodhi or where we saw his cadre and, and Bodhi when we met them the very first time we're going much further out into the desert right and the the caves that saw is in they have a very most Eisley Katina feel to them very underbelly of the Star Wars universe even like some of the people that we saw in Solo kind of kind of fit into into this world people are gambling uh you know putting their gun like there's a great shot of the guy slamming his gun down on the table and staring at the prisoners as they walk in I'm sure that character has a name and I'm sure the whole fandom is going to be up in arms because I don't know his name or that he has a PhD from Naboo University uh, in <laughs> astrophysics. But I apologize for not knowing. <laughs> for, for not knowing. Uh, Star Wars is so extensive that every, every character's got a name and backstory. It's just really hard to, to keep track of them all. Right. Um, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we are, we're given this kind of, this almost cantina feel, but it's definitely more sinister than that. Instead yeah. of like, oh, yeah. we're all drinking and talking and selling each other death sticks or whatever, we are cleaning guns and comparing maps and and eyeballing our prisoners. It's very sinister. Mm-hmm. It's very evil in there. But that's because Saw's type of warfare that he wages on the Empire attracts people who are more a little a little more shady the saw is an extremist and he doesn't want to stick to shiny alliances and like remnants of the former senate he and his people are independent and they're loners and they're harder and more ready to pick a fight and that gives that that whole space that atmosphere that sinister atmosphere it's also, I think, really interesting, this idea, because I love the 
underbelly of the Star Wars universe. I love these kinds of characters, but these ones in particular are in this part of the world fighting for their freedom and fighting against the Empire, um, but still sort of the underbelly types. This is a different kind of criminal because from what we get predominantly in the original trilogy are criminals who will willingly work with the Empire because they know where the money is. These are criminals who are going to work with the Rebellion because all they care about is freedom. And probably their their criminal nature or their underbelly-ish nature comes from that desire for freedom, rebelling against society in general. Saw just happens to have found a relatively constructive output for all of their rebellion <laughs> in the actual rebellion. And I think it's a really important difference, especially as it pertains to eventually the, the character arc that Han Solo goes down of trying to find himself between, are you the kind of criminal who goes with the Empire because that's where the money is? Cough, cough, Kira, cough, cough. Uh, or are you the kind of criminal who goes with the rebellion because you enjoy the freedom? You enjoy the freedom, and maybe you do have this innate, like, inner Goodness. sense of, of what's right. Right. So, yeah, and and maybe these guys do. Yeah, yeah, uh, but that's more of a conversation for our spinoff solo podcast that will be starting sometime <laughs> in the next decade. Yes, I was I was about to say, don't make any promises, Ponders, but a decade is a good time frame to think yeah, about that one. theoretically. <laughs> all right awesome so we are in saw's lair and yes. we have uh, most of our heroes are now thrown into a holding cell we've got cassian and Baze and Chirrut in the holding cell cassian immediately is like not having it he goes right to the door like he, he like he wants to break out right away um, but Chirrut and Bass kind of like step back. They they take a seat. Well, and we start they... we start immediately with Chirrut praying. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. Pray. Bass makes fun the of them. Yeah. yeah, he they they settle Wait, into their into their seats and they get ready to sit there for a while. I think they're used to it because they're troublemakers. But Bass makes fun of Chirrut and he says. Um, he, he he's like, are you praying? You're praying. He's praying for the door to open. He's praying for the door to open. He's he's laughing at him a little bit. And Chirrut gives us it's like my favorite delivery of a line. I mean, I love all of Chirrut's lines, but Chirrut's next two lines are some of my favorite in the whole film. He says, uh, it, bothers it bothers him because he knows because it's he possible. Knows it's possible. Base <laughs> Morbus was once the most devoted guardian of us all. Most devoted guardian of us all. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. And it that one line tells, combined with like the physical behavior we've seen at base so far, like ready to pull out his gun at any minute and protecting Chirrut from the stormtroopers and saying you're welcome for, for shooting stormtroopers and stuff like that. The physicality we've seen of Baze combined with that one line of Chirrut's tells me all I need to know about Baze. This was a man who once had faith and has lost it. But his faith and his hope and his world revolves around Chirrut in way. He, despite the fact that he does not believe in the, in the same religion or the same force or the same anything as Chirrut, he has not left his side. 
he protects him and he keeps him safe and will go along with whatever crazy scheme that or talk to you know sure it just decides to talk to and make friends with this random girl with a kyber crystal necklace and base goes okay i'm in for the ride right even though i don't believe that the force and i don't believe anymore that the force is what's telling you to do this and that's all yeah that's all i need to know about base to love him he's a, a really difficult guy really complicated and, and i think that line it bothers him because he knows it's possible is kind of this like dual-sided jab and also like it, it, it's very friendly it's very kindly said but the way that he says it kind of implies this like if he were actually to be given something that would truly like be the force right he his whole worldview would be shaken he would have to revert back to his his belief in the force and the flip side of it is the argument i think from from uh Chirrut, that like the force is currently guiding all of these actions Baze just isn't open to seeing it Baze just isn't seeing how the force is leading us through all these scenarios as as is happening <laughs> yeah because Baze has shut himself off from his beliefs whatever happened to Baze, whatever caused him to lose faith which we we don't no, we don't know what it what it is that caused Baze to lose faith, but we know that whatever it was made him step so far back that he doesn't even want to acknowledge that he used to believe in it. Right. And and that separation from that from that core part or what probably be assumed as being a core part of someone, his beliefs, has has changed him. And Chirrut is still trying hasn't given up on him. Right. And yeah, and their relationship is really beautiful. And then we get a line from Cassian. I'm, I'm beginning, beginning to, to think, think the Force and I have different, different priorities. Yes, which is very telling about Cassian as well. And and it also comes after Chirrut has just accused Baze of, of hiding his belief in the Force. Uh, and we see that dichotomy. And then Cassian's line sets himself even further away from all of that not even like an acknowledgement of his belief in the force he's literally saying i don't really think there's a force because if there is it's not working for me it's working against me <laughs> yeah um, and then that line actually i think is kind of all that Chirrut needs to deliver his scathing line in a moment i think he says something to the effect of uh you know we've been in in worse cages than this and cassian goes this is a first for me and then Chirrut says I sense you carry your prison with you wherever you go. Relax, yeah. Captain. We've been in worse cages than this one. This is a first for me. There is more than one sort of prison, Captain. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. He, it's really good. It's, it's a really good line. And again, like one line that gives you a lot of what you need to know about Cassian. Because Cassian doesn't deny it and he doesn't say... I don't know what you're talking about. That's silly. I think he gets it. He hears Sherrod say it and he's uh, he's not going to fight. He's got other things that he's focused on because he shuts himself off so completely from like emotion and humanity. Cassian puts on a, he, he in this moment has his like spy face on. He's got the, I need to escape now face. And I'm not going to acknowledge that what you just said was true because I'm now going to be focused entirely on leaving and getting out of this cage and out of the situation. He is not used to being locked in a cage. And cause when he's locked in a cage, I think he's forced to do some 
internal reflection, which is not something that he's been able to do at this point. He separates the man, the Cassian, the spy that has to kill an informant and Cassian, the spy who's doing everything for the rebellion for one cause specifically. He's got all of these compartments and different pieces of Cassian that none of them allow him to be like a human being. Right. And Therefore, when Chirrut directly accuses him of carrying around a prison, carrying around these cages that are holding on to the different parts of him that he doesn't ever let come out into into public, he yeah, he shuts down. He doesn't he doesn't give Chirrut an acknowledgement or a denial, right. which I think is really telling. I also think there's something to be said of the line, this is a new one for me from Cassian, which is I think and I guess we'll find out more about this, but I guess it has this kind of implication that Cassian usually works alone and he's usually gets himself out of situations and he's never there to get caught, right? Yes. But now he's with Jin and K2SO and with um, Chirrut and Baze and now that he's with a group of people, he's kind of watching out for more people than just himself. It's making it a little bit more difficult and he is uh, now trapped in a cage. Also, I will just say, if at any point during the Cassian TV show, he ever gets trapped in a cell, I will be very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because he claims here that this is the first that he's never really had to be locked in a cage. Maybe he means... Literally, he's never been locked in in this particular type of cell. Maybe he's never been captured by partisans. Or maybe, yeah, maybe he literally means he's never been captured before. Maybe he's just that good. But he's been at it since he was six years old. Maybe he really is that good. I also think it maybe suggests with Chirrut and Bay saying we've been trapped in many cages before, <laughs> that it's possible that the Guardians of the Wills have been like locked up and imprisoned and like the politics of Jeddah City have just been such that the people who were good have been turned into prisoners and Cassian has never felt like a prisoner. Cassian has never been on the wrong side of a thing. Maybe he doesn't even feel like a like a POW, but he feels like he's a prisoner of like they're saying something about his moral state because it is partially directly tied to say that to the one who killed our men. Yeah. And him being caught for having killed someone and kind of being imprisoned in the sort of moral vindication side rather than the prisoner of war side. Um, that has to be another element of those lines there. So, yeah. No, yeah, I I agree. Also, side note, today is November 8th, 2018. And we have been blessed with the news that we're getting a Cassian Andor TV show. That happened today. You just dropped, you just name dropped it. And and I'm so excited to find out more about Cassian. He's a fascinating man. But this is not a news podcast. This Moving is not on. a news podcast. We just had to, I just had to say it. It's, I'm so, I'm so excited. Um, We got to move on. We got to talk about Saw. Let's not. Let's talk about Bodhi. Okay. You're right. Yeah. We got to move on. We got to talk about Bodhi. Let's talk about Bodhi real quick. Bodhi Rook, poor, poor, sweet baby. And, Bodhi and Rook. This, this trope that is, I, I think it's it's probably on TV tropes of the blind man sees more than the seeing people uh, in that Chirrut says, who's that person in the next cell? <laughs> and and they go, what? What person what? in the next cell? <laughs> There's a next cell? They're right. like, they have no idea. They have no idea that he's there. Who's the one in the next cell? What? 
because he's just sitting there silently and trapped probably in his own mind. Bodhiroka has just had his mind totally ravaged by the evil Borgullet. I'm deciding, I'm calling it right now, it's evil. You don't know its life, but okay. I don't, but I know. <laughs> <laughs> the Borgullet has just torn his brain apart. Uh, yeah. And Saw told us that the side effect is one tends to lose one's mind. And he doesn't say you will lose your mind, but you tend to yeah. when you when you meet the Borgullet. And Bodhi is sitting there like catatonic, staring into space. And then uh, Baze says, oh, it's an Imperial pilot. And he goes to like strangle him. And Cassian is like, no, 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 I need that guy alive. <laughs> and runs like, up. <laughs> an Imperial pilot. I'm going to kill him. No, 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 wait for me. No. Back off. Back off. What a coincidence, Cassian, you found your Imperial pilot. Like, right. hey, I think, by the way, the Force might be working in your favor, Cassian. Right. <laughs> but he finds his Imperial pilot. And we get we get Bodhi in a very fractured state. Oh, he poor baby. He doesn't even know who he is or what he's doing there. He's totally shattered. And he has to be reminded. Right. You're the pilot. You brought the message brought the message I'm the pilot I'm the pilot I'm the pilot okay good right. I'm the pilot you're I'm the pilot I brought the message I'm the pilot and he can't really get anything else out he has he doesn't know he has to be removed physically from that space during the evacuation before he's able to say anything other than I brought the message on the pilot. Those things being the only thing that he still, that he can remember. Those are the things that, that, that haven't left him yet. He gets reminded. He says, I'm the pilot. I brought the message. I brought the message. I'm the pilot. Cause that's what's core to his being right now. I'm a defected Imperial pilot. And I brought a very important message because I'm doing the right thing. And that's like, in the core of his heart that is what's the most important thing is why it's the first thing to come back I, th I think that's really important for Bodhi to have that sense of identity has not been entirely stripped from him he needs right. to be reminded of it but it's not gone right and this begins the character of Bodhi which I I have always loved from from the first time that I saw this of him having this like mental trouble having a sort of almost mental disability and having to overcome this sort of like struggle he has with comprehension and with collecting his thoughts and with speaking um and also a sort of ptsd of like his experience with the borgullet kind of shaking him through the rest of the film the the bodhi that we get before has a sort of confidence uh and a delivery of lines look, we're wasting our time here. I just need to speak to... Like, he, he's very direct and he knows what he wants. And then he he kind of, like, he takes it a step back and he's very shook throughout the rest of the film. And we'll talk about this more as he delivers more lines and as he, he becomes more integral to the conversation. But I just love the fact that he's one of our heroes and he's going through a traumatic... Like, go, he's going through trauma and he's going through that process as we watch him also be a hero that that means a lot to me and yeah. I, I think it's a really important touch in the writing of the film um and we talk about like 
it's important to have characters with different traits and, you know, different races and different genders and different identities. And I don't think the mental health identity often gets touched upon in the right way. This isn't the only identity that doesn't get touched upon in the right way, to be clear. Oh, definitely. We're still working on that. (laughs) We have a lot. But I think a lot of the time, characters who struggle with mental health in films tend to have that be the center of their whole narrative, right? Like Silver Linings playbooks, like so focused on their mental shortcomings and their mental health issues that it makes that the bulk of their story and why they fall in love rather than actually focusing on the characters who just happen to be struggling with mental health. Right. Films about anxiety, films about, like, this is the thing, is that they're not films about characters. They're films about a character with anxiety or a film about a character with depression or a film about a character with all these sorts of issues. So, Right. We get here a character... Bodie Rook with motivation and heart and emotion and struggles and also PTSD and whatever else is going on in that in that fractured brain of his and right. uh, like that it's a it's a part of him but it's not a defining end of his character yeah. we get more we get more from him and he becomes a true hero he gets a name Rogue One for crying out yeah, that's loud true. like he he does it he does it with a with a stammer but he does it yeah. um he, he names and and says p- pulling away he he stutters but he pulls away he does the thing i also think this is the the one last thing i have to say about this and then we can move on because we have so much to talk about um Woof. but but the other thing that i really appreciate about this is that the character who is going through trauma and dealing with mental health as a result of trauma is a, is a man in this case. This is just something that I observe from myself. I tend to see that a lot of the narrative around trauma and grief tends to be through women and for good purpose. Like there's a lot of women who need to see a character overcome a trauma narrative because that's very prevalent, but it's also really nice to see a guy deal with trauma and yeah, I really, I really yeah. like that a lot. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I I agree. And because typically, when you see male characters going through trauma, if 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 you do get that narrative, it's usually like a combat PTSD, which is not anything to dismiss entirely. But Bodhi is not a soldier. Right. So much of the, I think the combat PTSD narrative and this like, oh, the men who experience trauma are ones who have gone off and, and been typically masculine and typically strong and, and stuff like that. We get a character instead who is being a, given a, a male character, given a chance to overcome emotional trauma from not that. From a, a non-consensual invasive torture. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that you don't see male characters dealing you with. You don't. You never do. And yeah. it's really special. It's really, really important. Yep. Bodhi's the best. <laughs> Gotta love Bodhi. Bodhi's the best. I don't think we can, this We'll section... dedicate a whole episode to Bodhi someday. We will. we will. I don't think this section ends with any funny jokes. So I don't know where the sting is going to go. Probably right <laughs> here. Let's talk about Saw. The moment where Jin and Saw see each other for the first time in 
maybe five years or so yeah how old is jen uh in her very early 20s that's what she, i always assumed and she left, yeah. he, he left her behind at 16 yes so let's say it's been like five or so years it's been a long time yeah and the look on their faces when they see each other across the room they're genuinely happy to see each other yeah jen jen is trying to pull off her i'm gonna be the neutral but she can't hide. it's again it's again what felicity jones does so well in all of her scenes is I'm going to show a character who's trying not to show emotion, but lets her emotions slip out. And it's pulled off again here perfectly in the very first moment that she sees Saw. Her She's... eyes just light up. Yes. She is so excited to see him. It's like she flashes back for a moment to being a little eight-year-old girl, and there he is opening that hatch yes. to rescue her. Yep. And she pushes it back down again. Yeah, so that's actually... There's there's some really cool cinematography going on here, uh, and I wanna oh, I'm gonna do my thing again where we talk about choreography and stuff like that. Do it, go for it. But throughout most of this conversation, we're gonna be in between Jin and Saw with the camera in between them. But the first thing that we see from the camera is that once we are on Saw, Saw is going to start taking steps forward, and the camera is going to dolly back with Saw, placing the camera under the power of saw so that in this scene part of the position that we should be focusing on is how saw is interpreting what's going on and that will be important in a minute because saw's interpretation of this scene is everything in terms of the power dynamic he is in control this is his place these are his people all around she is the outsider and the camera dollies back with him until she says you left me when I was 16. I was 16, she takes a step forward there. Yeah. You left me behind. You were already the best soldier in my cadre. I was 16. I was protecting you. You dumped me. And he stops and the camera stops moving too. <laughs> and then with that, they have this sort of argument where then the cameras approach them at a very neutral, like head on, straight on kind of position. But as it delves in further into their emotional state, it starts to really zoom in closer on both of them and give us more of the like emotional side of what they're both going to. And then we get the first shot of them together when he says, you were the best soldier in my cadre. And in that shot, it's an over-the-shoulder shot of Jin, which all of the shots of the two of them together will be. It's an over-the-shoulder shot of Jin where you can see almost all of her and she takes up the same amount of space in the frame as Saw is taking up. And it's the, the two, these two soldiers seeing each other as equals. This is where they're having this sort of negotiative practice of let's, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Let's get to the point. And Jin gives us some of these lines like they needed an introduction. I, I, I'm here. I'm here to do my job. Right. Right. Well, at that point, when it starts becoming about the Alliance, and he's like, no, but why are you here? He He's trying to comprehend what she could possibly be doing there. And his like paranoia is taking over every single time that she says the word Alliance or Rebels or anything regarding the 
other group of rebels that's not his partisans right he shuts down he shuts down more and more and more his face just closes up he is not interested he was so excited to see Jin, but hearing now that Jin and this group that he does not agree with and does not ally himself with uh, putting those two thoughts in the in the same thought for him makes him start shutting down. He loses yep. so much emotion in his face, and th- and that's and that's visually represented by us zooming in closer onto him and yeah. isolating him further and pulling himself into himself more, right? So that his focus is less on the world around him and potentially on Jin. Yeah, and and then he delivers and. Uh, well, actually, sorry, the next thing that we see is he, he gets that sort of skepticism and then it pulls back to another shot of the two of them. And this is where he grabs his his breath and he takes a, a big, deep breath out of the thing. And in that shot, it's again over the shoulder shot, except for it's much closer to Jin so that you only get about from her ear down to her shoulder and it takes up half the frame. And Jin is literally, in his perception, closing in on her. He, she is literally taking over this situation. And then he delivers this amazing line. D- did that? Did, did they? they? Are, are you, you here to kill me? There's not much, much of me left. left. Did they? Send you. Did you come here to kill me? There's not much of me left. Ah, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And you know what's just so beautiful about that line is something that I was thinking about when I was talking about this scene with Buddy, with Buddy Duquesne. Um, in this moment, in the moment that he acknowledges and he says, "There's not much of me left." He has never looked more human, despite the fact that in that second, he is acknowledging that he is probably more machine now than man. He is, I won't stop saying that line. (laughs) Um, He has never had a more human, like naked, open emotion on his face in that second. This is the, the most human he's ever been. And probably one of the most human that any of these characters get the, one of the rawest deliveries of any character in the entire film. Be- because um, I, I think it's maybe one of the most genuine expressions of fear in the entire film. Yeah. All of our characters are soldiers who are ready to, to fight. Even in the very beginning, Galen standing down Krennic, he has that, he has that like, focus and drive on and i mean i guess the only more raw fear that we get is baby Jin sitting in the in the bunker like crying with the light but but when he says this line and there's also this really nice detail of he starts by saying did they and then then switches it to are you because the only thing for him worse than someone from the rebellion sending someone to kill him is Jin being the person who has been sent to kill him. That, yeah, like, that's this, his worst nightmare. The, the person who is practically his daughter that he cares for, that he loves, is the one who is going to come and take him out. And it's that, that horrifying him. to him. Yeah. yeah, it's the the worst possible scenario. And I, and I was just thinking, I was just like, I think the only other point in this film where we get that naked, raw emotion 
I mean, we get a lot of a lot of emotion, but I think the only other moments in in this film that really rival that shot of him is Jin in a moment when she's looking at her father, and Jin and Cassie when they're going head to head on the when they're leaving Edu when she's confronting him about killing about killing Galen. Right. Every other scene, people are are ready to experience emotions or they're ready for a fight or they've prepared themselves for an eventual, even the, the scene on the beach, like th- there's a lot of emotion there, but they've resigned themselves to, to what's about to happen kind of thing. But like they're ready for yet. it, but we're not there yet. But what I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is, yeah. is that in the grand scheme of this film, we, we get a handful of these moments where these characters become truly open to us and they open themselves into the camera and they, basically rip their hearts out and show us exactly what they're feeling and it's it's hard to watch it's hard to be confronted with such naked emotion especially out of someone like Saho Guerrero who up until this moment has been very very scary I mean he's still scary but we saw him intimidating and torturing Bodhi we saw him fighting with Jin a minute ago like defending himself and then you see him break and that's really hard to, to that point none of these shots are the upward angle that we got of saw when he was confronting Bodhi. it's all on level or slightly tilted up and that's part of those moments where it's slightly tilted up are the moments of we have a relationship we were friends we were like father and daughter like this is an important thing for us But then whenever it's pulled back up so that there's no angle or tilt to the camera, it's them being soldiers talking about the discussion that they have to have. Yeah, they become equals. And Jin pretty quickly shuts down the emotion after that. She says, the rebellion sent me. They figured that by sending me out, get an audience with you. Now that I'm here my part's done. I, I can go home. <laughs> she, yeah. She doesn't entertain that paranoia from him. I wonder if it's because she doesn't take that kind of, that kind of nonsense from him. Right. If she knows, she knows him too well to enter, even entertain that idea. She's like, Oh, stop it. Saw like, like, no, let me tell you what's really happening here. I came here to do an introduction. I did it. Now can I go? She knows him too well. It's it's like hearing the same story out of your dad, like that right, same story right. that your dad tells at Christmas <laughs> every year or anything like that. Like it's a familiarity here. And then and then we move into something that's not not as horrifying for Saw, but it it makes him equally as upset, which is this idea that Jin no longer cares about the rebellion. Um, and this really great line, I it, it immediately latched onto me the first time I saw the film of, could you stand to watch the Empire's flag fly across the, the galaxy? You can stand to see the Imperial flag rain across the galaxy. It's not a problem if you don't look up. And she says, it's not a problem if you don't look up. It's not a problem if you don't look up. And it's such, that is, I think, in the same way that we've just seen Saw at his most raw and honest about himself, this is Jin being the most honest about her position. She'll yeah. she'll say that she needs to care when she needs to look like she's caring. She'll she'll play her part, but this is her looking in the mirror and saying, "All of this rebellion stuff is not who I want to be." You abandoned me. The rebellion abandoned me. None of this is important to me. I need to be free from all of this because I 
I have to be able to live my own life. I, I yeah. need to put all of this behind me because of the pain of it, because of because of the fact that she still doesn't hasn't reconciled with her father's abandonment or his role in the Empire, all of these sorts of things. And fortunately, Saw knows what to do to help that out. Yeah, she's a she's about to get that chance because next thing that happens is they turn on that hologram. Yeah. And I think I just have one I just have one last thing to say in that, which is that we get one more shot of the two of them together. And it's right at the very end there when Saw says, I have something to show you. But it's actually almost a full profile of Jin. It it is still behind the shoulder, but we can see all the way across Jin's head. And it has gone back to a point where Jin and Saw take up the same amount of space in the film. But as he then says, I have something to show you, he turns around and starts walking away. He takes up less and less space. And this is, I think, a really important moment. Throughout this conversation, there's kind of this implied father-daughter narrative going on of, are you going to be the daughter that I once had? Are you going to come back? Is this the penitent son returning, right? Or is this the the son coming back to kill me? Which narrative am I living in? Uh, and then there's actually almost this like moment at the end, and it's actually a, a tinge sad from Saw, not just because Jin is not following the rebellion, not just because Jin has become politically apathetic, but because Saw is realizing that he cannot be Jin's father. He cannot fill that role. And so he takes a step back, and then we get to the next scene. And then we do get her father. Because we turn on that hologram, and there's Galen Erso. I had noticed it, I think, before, but it really stood out this time. Galen Erso is looking haggard. Yeah. That man looks tired. He's got scruff on his cheeks. He's got bags under his eyes. He is. He sounds devastated while he's talking. Galen Erso is a broken man. Yeah. It, it also, I think in terms of i'm again going to focus a little bit on cinematography here so that i don't have to deal with emotions because it's it's gonna get real sad in a minute um but as soon as as galen starts talking he's talking to saw and we see all the shots in this section move not a single shot is on a tripod they're all on a dolly and they're all moving or ready to move in an instant and this first shot we're rotating around galen in Jin's position we are where Jin is standing and that that's a really important thing because now it's no longer that we're moving with Saw. We're not in Saw's boots. This is about Jin because these are now Jin's people. And we're moving where Jin is standing as we're getting a better view to like really confirm that this is Galen. He's talking to Saw and Saw is walking in the background. And then he says, I think there's a hope for the rebellion, a hope for you, a hope but for Jin. Saw. So. If you are watching this, then perhaps there's a chance to save the Alliance. Perhaps there's a chance to explain myself, and though I don't dare hope for too much, a chance for Jin, if she's alive. And the minute he says Jin, the camera cuts around, and we see Galen and Jin looking up at her father, and this is the moment when she knows that this is 100% Galen. Yeah, because up until that point, every, every glimpse we see of her face, until he says her name... 
it looks like Jin doesn't recognize him. Right. And it, we... it she she looks and she looks yep. and she narrows her eyes a little bit and then her eyes widen and then he says her name and then it's like pure recognition. She's like, that's my dad. There he is. He's right here. And then importantly, for the rest of the speech, Galen has nothing to say to Saw. No. Nope. It, it it is all directed right at Jin. And that I think maybe the first time maybe rubs some people the wrong way of like, why why did Galen send this message to Saw? But then it was all about Jin. Like, you know, how did he know that Saw would be able to get it to to Jin or any of this and that? But I, I actually think it's it's a really good detail of how Galen knows that there's only one person who can do this, has only one person he wants to talk to in the world, and he knows that someone can find Saw, but he doesn't know where to find his daughter. He he does know that the backup plan, the emergency plan, was always for Saw to come to come get them. Saw was going to come rescue Jin and Lyra from the hole. Always. So he knows he can get a message to Saw, but he does not know he has never received confirmation that Saw was able to rescue Jen. So he says, Saw, I have I have this message and I really, really hope that Jen is with you because here's my message for her. Right. And yeah, you're right. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. He he doesn't he, you know, Saw's a, a friend and he's a, a, he's a, an ally and he's important. The only person that matters to Galen or so is Jin. There's also a really good intershot where Saw is looking at Jin. He's not looking at Galen. He's looking at he's Jin. He's looking at Jin. And then oh, we, God, cut, hard. we cut to look at Jin and Jin looks like such a child. She's totally in profile. So it's it's just as narrow as she can be and as small as she can be in the frame. And it looks like baby Jin again, seeing her yeah. dad. It, it's, it's just her head... Because she's got to look up. This uh, this hologram is so tall. She has to look right. up at him. And he probably... Last time she saw him, she was eight years old. And she had to look up like that. She had to tilt her head backwards to look her dad in the face. Unless he got down on her level. When he kneels down in front of her and hugs her goodbye. Other than that, every, every image that she's got of her father is him standing strong. Looking at Krennic. You know, like... Her last memories of her father are either him bending down to hug her or standing as tall as he can, facing down Krennic, who is the enemy, the one who take, takes Galen away from her. So she's standing there, looking up at this giant hologram of Galen, and he is now the same height that he would have been, even though she's taller now, now he's taller. It, it's the act of needing to tilt your head back to look up at somebody and to look up at them with their eyes as wide as hers and her mouth open just a little bit like she doesn't realize her mouth is open because she's in shock that there he is and he's just as big and he's just as strong and he's just as tall as she always remembered her father to be. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, you're right. That shot of her, she looks so small. is is beautiful yeah. it's really lovely the the blue reflection in her eyes of of the hologram is like uh it's <laughs> a lot that shot gets me to to tears every single time um because i it's that it's i mean 
if she hasn't seen Saw in a long time, it's been even longer since she's seen her dad. Um, and and then for him to like even get the sense that like the one thing he wants to do is talk to you um, when you don't it's... know when you don't know what your dad's fighting for or who he's fighting for or if he's you know on the dark side the only thing he cares about is you is just like it's a really good detail it's yeah and and this is she's she's let herself since the moment that they brought him up in the situation room back on Yavin she hasn't let herself completely believe yet that he's good that he's been fighting for for the for the light this whole time she's let herself consider the idea but she's ready until that moment until the moment he appears she's ready to accept that maybe he is bad that maybe he has been working for the but i think the sec the second that he starts speaking or the second that that recognition dawns on her and she realizes that that's her dad that's that's it she's like whatever he says i'm 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 all in i i'm here to receive this message she opens herself up completely to receive a message from him and the message is one of of hope he's giving her a chance to do something to make things right but he also gives her an out he's essentially says i want i want you to be happy i just need to make sure that you're that you're okay my only right. hope is that you're fine and i miss our family yeah well, and and, well, and that would have been okay for him if she had been like look i'm not in the rebellion but i'm happy and safe he'd be like fine great awesome all right. i want to know is that you're safe and, and it's it's pretty clear that his biggest fear is not it's, his biggest fear is not that the empire now has a death star but that at some point that death star may be the death of his daughter it's going to be pointing right at her right. which it is which, which it is, which it it is, is right is. there and so this is this is where it all ties into we made this connection last time the strongest the strongest stars have hearts made out of kyber and the two things stardust and the death star which are both ds's just inversed uh that galen has created are both right here and we just heard her say you know her line about political apathy and then intercut with galen's speech is these shots from a new hope of turning on the death star and it is both of them being activated in in this in this weird sort of way is yeah both of galen's creations are really the death star is being turned on to reach its full potential or part of its potential and Jin is finding what she really needs to do so then he says he says this line i've built a weakness deep within it a flaw so small and so powerful i've placed a weakness deep within the system a flaw so small and powerful they will never find it but i was like as i was watching it this time and bawling my eyes out i uh i was thinking like if we're gonna continue this comparison of the death star and Jin, what is the flaw inside oh, of Jin? jesus that's like jesus i know, I know. <laughs> i'm gonna make it worse sorry what's the flaw inside of Jin that uh is so small and so powerful that they could never find it and then he answers it in the very next line for himself and it's the same for Jin. and i'm gonna i'm gonna start crying too is that he, he says i can't 
think of you except for when I'm the strongest because the thought of because when I'm like so close to failure I'm, I if I were to think of you when I was in a moment of weakness I would fail and let it all go just to try and be back with you and your mom and the family and like it's true that her family is like the weakness inside of of Jin that when they can find her family and they can like that's the thing that gets her that's the thing that is small and powerful inside of her and it just adds such a a new layer to her finding a family in the second half of this film to help her keep fighting this fight is the only way that she can go on that she can't she can't do this by herself and the weakness is is family um and also that's the strength and that's what that's what makes Jin such an incredible character um so I'm sorry. <laughs> nah, you you got me. I'm sorry. You got me real good. I'm also very sad. Oh. Uh, I just. Oh God. I just. Jin is. Jin's a really important, important character to me. Because I get that, and I understand that. That weakness, that. If that's the weakness so small and so powerful that that no one can ever find it. She's getting to she's communicating with the father that she's assumed has left her behind. But he didn't he didn't leave her. It's too close it's too close. It's too <laughs> because he didn't he doesn't leave her. He was thinking about her all the time, even when they weren't together. Yeah. And it's so hard because it's so it's so real. Yeah. Bonders, I, I don't know how. Like, it's okay. I didn't. I didn't get to do it. I didn't get to. Yeah. I didn't get that moment to reconcile with my dad. I didn't get to have a message from him letting me know he was thinking of me all along. I got it after he, after he died. I met up with his, his financial advisor, his, who was a very, very, very good friend of his for many, many years. And I, it was the first time that I had a conversation with somebody because a lot of people were, were just trying to make me feel better like, oh, it's okay, he's in a better place, blah, blah, blah. But this conversation I had with the financial advisor, of a friend of my father's and somebody who looked at me and told me, he said, I know that your relationship with your dad was really hard and that you didn't get the closure that you needed, but I've got it, I have it. Because your father was working on it, on something for you. He was, he was saving and investing and he was, he was building he's he's building a nest for you he he took out four life insurance policies he may not have had the ability to tell me in person that he cared about me but it turned out all along the entire time he was thinking of me he was thinking of me and expressing how he was thinking of me in a way that it was so big and so impersonal, but it was how he could express how he felt. And so I take this 
Galen Urso has built this Death Star because he loves his daughter so much and he doesn't know or is not physically capable of expressing how much he loves his daughter. So he's doing literally the only thing that he can, which is to build something and to use his hands to actually like to do to do the work, to build a thing is how he expresses how he feels As he about says, about his part, family. Play the part of a person resigned to their work. And it's also this idea yeah. that if he just gets this done, if he gets this thing done for them and even if they build it without him and he, he can build a flaw into it, there might be a world in which he gets to the other side where the Empire is not working on this project anymore, where he's free to go back. And that's the moment he never gets. And He doesn't. But Jin gets to hear it from him. Yeah. He gets to, She gets to hear it from his mouth. She crumbles. She absolutely crumbles. She literally crumbles when when the hologram goes out because thinking that somebody didn't care about you and then suddenly finding out that someone not only do they care about you but they cared about you more than anything else in the whole galaxy the weight of that is so powerful it's so strong it's so heavy that you can't help she just collapses And then, well, she does get to see him one last time and she gets to hear his voice and touch his face. And and she, she's given that it's hard to watch this movie and think that what Jin, the the last moments that she gets with her father are a gift, but they really are a gift. She gets that and she, she gets to make a promise and and that promise what she get what she says to her father and we're not there yet obviously but what she gets to say to galen she decides what she's going to say to galen in that moment right as soon as she hears what what uh, the, she hears the hologram and she's transformed into a new per- she's a new person and she's now dedicated that political apathy that she had is gone because now the only thing that matters is getting to her dad. She said, I have, I, I'm going to get there and I'm going to tell him, I heard your message. I'm going to, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to help. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save us. I'm going to save our family. And she decides that right there, right? When she crumbles, her lips trembling, she has made that choice. She's, she's all in. And that, yeah, so it saw meant to do it. If that's what saw wanted, by showing her that message, not just because, oh, I need to inspire a soldier, but because he loves her, but he's not her dad. And he gives her that gift. But he basically steps steps away, and maybe that's the moment where he decides that he's not going to make it out of this alive. He's he, he's like, I've done my duty. I've, I've sent my message, and I've taken care of my daughter, and I've given this to the next generation. I've inspired her. It's time to go. It's time to leave it. Um... Yeah, I think that's. Ugh, I think that's all I can all I can <laughs> say about that. <laughs> yeah, um, but as, as you mentioned already, I'll kind of I'll kind of guide us out of here for the for the end of it. As you mentioned already, he says uh, it'll begin a sequence that will destroy the whole, and then the the feed cuts Any out. Any pressurized explosion into the reactor module will set off a chain reaction that will destroy the entire. Which is a little bit of irony. Thank you, Gareth. 
<laughs> to, <laughs> to, to like end that scene as Jeddah is literally being destroyed and yeah uh, that chain reaction of explosions that yep. it, that mirrors exactly what Gala just said about how the Death Star is gonna gonna and die Cassian breaks them out they grab their gear they free Bodhi they have to pull Bodhi out Cass they're like let's go and Cassian's like not without Jin for all you rebel <laughs> captain shippers out there he has to go get her he has to get her. He runs in. She is on her knees in tears, immobile. And when he says, Jin, let's go, there's actually a moment real quick where Saw and Cassian kind of look at each other. They and, square off for a second. Yeah, it's totally nonverbal and excellent. But Saw is like, he's going to take care of Jin. This is yeah. going to work. And he, he has my blessing. <laughs> right. And, and she looks up at him so fractured and so broken and i've been exactly there and i I, that moment where she doesn't have any words except for again it's the trust goes both ways she trusts cassian she knows cassian is gonna take her the right way and saw trusts cassian and cassian is like all right let's go and they run out of there and then the last i think most important thing that happens in the section is Bodhi steps out of Saw's cave and sees his city blown to bits. Ugh. And it it's it's such a subtle detail that you will miss if you've only ever seen this film once that Bodhi gets called a local boy. We he hear does. that he's from Jeddah City and then as they're running out the camera stops with Bodhi and focuses on him looking out at Jetta City, which is currently being lifted up in the air. It's almost entirely upside down at this point. Which is just like a further addition to this metaphor of his his roots. It's all been torn up. His his base is all is all gone. The thing that he thought was home, he no longer has a home. Cassian sees him, grabs him, they run, they hop on the ship. Kay says, I don't like our odds of getting out of here. I'm not very optimistic about our odds. Uh, <laughs> Never Cassian... tell me the odds. Wait. <laughs> Wrong movie. <laughs> right. Cassian says, punched into hyperspace. Kay says, I haven't completed my calculations yet. And Cassian goes, I'll complete my calculations for you. <laughs> Punch it. I haven't completed my calculations. I'll make them for you. very good it's very it's very never tell me the odds of him it's very han solo and we see saw again yes right 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 there at the end we get one last glimpse of saw whose last line i just wanted i just wanted to talk about his last line for a second yeah his last (laughs) the last words that come out of saw's mouth are save the rebellion save the dream because he says he's pushing her out the door he says go leave me I'm not yeah, I'm not gonna make it. Save yourself. Save yourself, save the rebellion, save the dream. Yeah. He says it in that order. He says, get your get yourself out of here. And then while you're at it, save the rebellion, save the dream. Go with him, Jim. You must go. Come with us. I will run no longer. Come on. But you must save yourself. Come on. Go! There's no time! Save the rebellion! Save the dream. And that 
is the end of Saw Gerrera. He, yeah, he removes himself from his life support. He faces down the mountain like a man and not a machine yeah. and lets it take him. And also his last line betrays that it's not about his way of fighting the war. It's about the rebellion. Yes. That this like petty difference he's had with the rest of the rebellion is not important. Uh, and I think especially seeing the destructive power of the Death Star, he kind of realizes guerrilla warfare doesn't work. Our tactics, we're on full scale now. Right. Our tactics worked when we were fighting other people who were on the ground with blasters. But this is this is beyond what we are capable of fighting. And save the rebellion. Save the dream. Uh, he faces it down. That shot of him getting covered in dust and it cuts away right before he's totally buried, but it it's it's heavy. It's really heavy. And then Cassian hits the ignition on the hyperdrive and they shoot out of there and it is the most beautiful shot in any Star Wars movie ever. It's stunningly beautiful. The pull up from the explosion to the Death Star above is it haunts me. It stays with, I want it on a poster if someone can make that a thing. It's such a good, beautiful shot. And speaking of calling it a beautiful shot, there's one other line in here uh, that we'll get to, <laughs> which is Krennic looking down at the destruction of the city just as it's happening. And he goes, Oh, it's, oh, it's beautiful. beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, God, he's not wrong, but dang. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's... he's not wrong. Is he watching the movie and noticing how beautiful the movie is? <laughs> right. It's it's the most... I actually think it's important because it's the most sadistic we see Krennic. A lot of his villainy ties into this middle management, trying to climb the ropes, frustrated with the system fighting against the empire from within just for recognition um and there's a way that you could watch all of this and you can ally with him a little bit like i, I understand that that sort of position but it's that moment where he goes oh it's beautiful that you're like uh, there's a twisted. really twisted person underneath here that isn't afraid to destroy an entire city and then turn around and ask for a promotion like, that's the kind of person where... It's not the kind of person who does really well with their midterm reports and does a great evaluation with the boss and then asks for a promotion. It's the kind of person who well, wants a promotion after they blow up a city. I mean, isn't that what he's doing? Yeah, isn't no, Tarkin no, no. like I, his supervisor and he's doing a really good midterm report? No, that's, and that's entirely... Evaluation. That's entirely what's happening but he's not just following orders. I think that's what I'm trying to trying to express is he's not Right. He's, he's going above and beyond. <laughs> and he likes it. <laughs> yeah. So uh and then that beautiful shot and that is where our, we are going to stop our conversation for today. So, uh that is where we are going to cut it off for today for next time we're actually going to tackle a little bit of a smaller chunk um we are only going to talk about the conversation that they have on the ship immediately following the jetta scene and the mustafar scene with the big baddie no spoilers <laughs> um just those two scenes because in the month of december it is also the anniversary of rogue one rogue one will be celebrating its 
third anniversary? Third birthday? Second, it's second birthday. Oh, it's second it's birthday. It'll be turning two. two. And in honor of that, should we tell them what we're going to do? I think we should go ahead and tell them what we're going to do. So Alice and I are going to sit down and we are going to record a whole commentary track for the entire film. It'll be two hours and ten minutes long. And we will just talk along the entire film. You can download it and you can hit play at the same time that we hit play. And then you can listen to us talk while you watch Rogue One. If that's the kind of thing you're into. If that's the kind of thing that you're into. There will also be a small episode in December, but because we're also going to be recording this, which will be a much longer process, though theoretically not edited, we will uh, do that. We might do this every year. Whereas our opinions and our reading of the movie grows so too will our full-on commentary tracks uh, and you'll get to listen to those every year around christmas so uh, our gift to you <laughs> <laughs> our christmas gift to you our voices uh so yeah a short episode that'll get us through i think we'll go from taking off jetta to the crashing of the ship on Ejil. Yes, we'll make the, the, the crap the, the actual physical crash of the ship our button to end this next segment. So that gets us a Tarkin and Krennic scene, Vader and Krennic scene, and uh, a scene with the finally the entire Rogue One crew together on a ship together. I, I think that's a, a nice a nice selection of scenes to bring us into the holidays. Yep. And uh, Alice, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter or now on Instagram. Both handles are the same. I'm Alice White, THP. THP stands for Those Happy Places, which is the other podcast that I do uh, with my co-host, Buddy Duquesne, who uh, did provide a little bit of, of uh, a little idea for me to, to talk about in this uh, episode. He's uh, insightful and brilliant and makes a, an awesome co-host. And the show is about theme parks rides attractions reading them as literature and why they matter so if that sounds like something you might be into you can find us uh wherever you get your podcasts again it's uh those happy places if you missed that ponders where can they find you uh you can find me most places at th ponders twitter instagram the likes and you can find this show at rogue fun pod on twitter and at rogue fun podcast on tumblr where we uh, re-tumble gifts and things. I'm not really in charge of the Tumblr. I don't know what goes on over no, there. No, I am I am all Tumblr all the time. Uh, yeah, we reblog a lot of gift sets about Jin and Cassian. So if you're a Rebel Captain shipper, hop on over. And if you like what you heard in this episode and you want to continue the conversation, we have a Discord. Uh, you can go over to our Discord. We have links for it all over our Twitter where you can join in the conversation. We talk about the episodes as they come out. We talk about news going on in the Star Wars and Rogue One community. Uh, we talk about all sorts of things over there. So hop on over and join us. And that's also where we do monthly uh, live watch parties of the film, where you can watch the movie with Alice and I and listen along, comment on the movie as we go. Uh, some of the conversations that we have in those live parties end up making it into the show so come on and join us for more rogue fun but yeah so um thank you very much for listening and alice may the force be with you may the force be with you